So Easter is a commemoration. It's a, it's a remembrance of the day almost 2,000 years ago now when death itself was defeated. And that long stumbling fall of humankind as we headed for annihilation was reversed. So that men and women all everywhere, all over our world, uh, may now live a new life empowered by God. The more proper name for this day is Resurrection Sunday. For on this day, we celebrate Christ's victory over death. And if Christ did not rise from the dead, then nothing about Christendom matters. Christmas is reduced to a sentimental story about a birth in a stable, but then it's just one more birth of one more child among millions. Good Friday, the day Jesus died, is just another day marking another death of a victim, confirming its statistical success. And the teachings of Jesus become mere moral tripe with no more authority than your words or mine. But if the resurrection is true, uh, well then, uh, all of those things we just mentioned do matter, and everything has indeed changed. All across the globe today and down through the centuries are people whose lives became new in the power which comes from God. And they know the truth of the resurrection, and they bear witness to it. This very room is full of them. And I myself proclaim to you that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and I am forever changed. So today we celebrate Christ's victory over death, and ours too because of him. And in order that we might really take joy in this day, and because of uh, on this day of all days, uh, we find that there are people in here who are curious, or there are people who kind of stray in here, and others brought them, maybe almost against their will, and even there's the occasional skeptic among us, so I need to set the stage for you today. So just briefly, let me tell you the backstory of the resurrection. On Thursday night, after a special meal with his disciples, Jesus was betrayed by one of his own. He, he was arrested in an olive grove, where he went with his followers, and his betrayer knew the place. The rest of his disciples deserted him, and one of them, on that very night, denied that he even knew him. He was interrogated through the night, and after some political intrigue and maneuvering, he was unjustly condemned to die on a cross, a punishment reserved for the worst of criminals. By 9 o'clock that Friday morning, Jesus had been nailed to his cross, and by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he was dead. His followers were in utter despair and in fear. They hid behind locked doors, afraid of being arrested themselves. Now, that's a brief account of the events which led up to the resurrection. And it's important because before we can really understand what happened on that Sunday morning, those many years ago, we need to realize that beyond any and all doubt, Jesus of Nazareth died 
on that cross on that Friday. There are people who make the claim, who put forth a theory that Jesus didn't really die, at least not on that cross on that day, not then on that day. Certainly he died, they claim, but a long time later. Their claim is that he merely fainted or swooned while he hung there on that cross. And according to their theory, he later revived in the tomb. And when he revived, they claimed that he left the tomb, which explains why the tomb was empty and why people saw him later. A little bit later on this morning, we'll understand why they were so desperate to make this claim, this theory. And yet one must certainly be incredulous at such a theory. It shows an utter lack of comprehension of what it meant to be crucified as well as, I think, a willing blindness to the facts that surrounded the event. Crucifixion was a a slow, painful, but certain death. And I'm going to be graphic here, but I'm not at all intending to be sensational. I'm simply going to report the facts as we know them about crucifixion. The wounds that were inflicted by the nails and the hands and the feet were only the beginning of the pain. Death came by a slow and agonizing asphyxiation. As long as a person had the strength, he would try to, to stay upright on the cross, supporting himself with his legs, of course, putting pressure on his agonized feet. And there was this constant pressure on the arms and hands as they resisted the tug of gravity that was pulling him forward. But their strength would give out sooner for some, later for the very strong, but it would fail. And then they would simply go limp and hang there. And when one is actually hanging on the cross, their chest expanded, causing that person to inhale. But in that position, they couldn't exhale. That, in that position, it was impossible to breathe out, to exhale. So they would struggle back up again, lift themselves up so they could breathe out and so they could exhale. But, but they couldn't stay in that position for very long. So once again, they would sink back down slower at first and more quickly as they grew weaker. And they would just hang. And the process would repeat itself And when all their strength was gone, the person would simply hang there and quite literally drown in air. And Jesus hung in that state for a long period of time. The record shows that someone had to know that he died. And then they made the trip from Golgotha, where he was, all the way to Pilate's palace. And then he got an audience with Pilate in order to request the body. And then Pilate sent someone back to get the centurion who was in charge of crucifying Jesus to verify that he had actually died. And then, and only then, did they go back to release the body. There is no way anyone could have hung in motionless on that state for very long and survived. And as certain of all of that is, there's more to tell about the death of Jesus Christ and what happened on that day. In the meantime, while all of that was happening, the religious authorities decided they didn't want the people hanging on the cross during the Passover. So they went to Pilate and requested that their legs would be broken 
and once they were dead, they could be taken down. Now you understand why breaking their legs would hasten their death. They couldn't lift themselves up anymore and would hasten their death without lessening the pain any. And so Pilate, probably weary of the whole ordeal by now, orders that the legs be broken. And the message had to be sent. And the soldiers broke the legs of the two men that were hanging there with Jesus, but they realized that he was already dead. So instead of going through the effort of breaking his legs, and by the way, fulfilling prophecy in the process, one soldier pierced his side with a spear. Now those soldiers knew what they were doing, and that stab went straight into the heart, bringing a sudden flow of water and blood. The pericardium is a sac, it's a double membrane sac around the heart, and it's filled with a fluid that looks like water. And when that spear went into the heart, the fluid came out, and the blood from the heart also came out. And all the while, Jesus continued in that state until Pilate had released the body. There is no doubt that Jesus Christ was really dead. And there's three separate groups which, by their actions and testimony, demonstrate that truth. First, there was Jesus' own disciples who took the body and prepared it for burial to put it in the tomb. They saw his collapsed form on the cross. They, they saw how long he hung there. They saw the spear pierce his heart, and they handled his body, and they knew that it was a dead body. There was certainly no doubt in their minds. Otherwise, they would have never placed him in the tomb. And then there were the soldiers who were charged with the execution. They showed that he was dead by their report to Pilate and by allowing his disciples to take the body off the cross. But there's an interesting twist to this whole episode which provides additional proof that Jesus was actually dead. There's a third group which adds to the overwhelming facts as we already know them. The very next day, on Saturday, the religious leaders went to Pilate again, and they asked him to put a guard on the tomb. You see, Jesus' claim that he would rise from the dead three days later was well known, though it was not really very well understood at the time. It was beginning to dawn on the religious leaders just what he might have meant. And they were afraid someone would steal the body and that would become a problem for them. And so Pilate granted him a Roman guard. That's a minimum of four soldiers, and very likely there were more than that. He also granted them the right to seal the tomb with a Roman seal. And without going into any detail, if you broke a Roman seal without the proper authority, they would hunt you down to the ends of the earth. And Roman guard duty was a deadly serious business. Guards who failed at their charge paid with their life. And that was true, by the way, of those that were tasked with crucifying Jesus. They would make sure that they didn't fail in their charge, for if they did, their own lives were forfeit. They made sure Jesus was dead. Anyway, you can be certain that when this guard arrived at the tomb, since it had been for a period of time unguarded, they rolled back the stone to verify that there was a body in there, and then it was the right body. And by now, Jesus' body was as cold as the stone that he laid on. And rigor mortis had set in. He was as stiff as a board. 
Jesus was dead. Jesus died on that Friday afternoon, and he was dead still on Saturday when the guard arrived at the tomb. Which brings us to Sunday and our text today. And you can join me there in your Bibles if you'd like, but it's also going to be on the screen on either side of us. And we begin reading there in um, verse 1. After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him, they shook and become, became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. I have to tell you, by the way here, the angel had further proof that Jesus was indeed had died. I mean, that Greek word crucified is in the perfect tense. It, it, it indicating something that was completed in the past. Like our word electrocute, which means death by electricity. The tense of this verb indicates death by crucifixion. But you know, the real import of what the angel had to say that morning comes in what follows. First, he says in the beginning of verse 6, he is not here. The angel is telling us that the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid was empty. And this is the most astounding and persistent fact in the history of the world. It's astounding because no other religion makes a claim like it. Buddha is still in the grave. Mohammed died and was buried, and he's still in his tomb. No one claims that Confucius is alive, but the tomb of Jesus was empty. And we should also understand that this claim of the empty tomb was not made hundreds of years later, and even ten years after the event. The word went forth that very day into Jerusalem that the tomb was empty, and anyone could go and verify. It's the most persistent fact of history to the dismay of so many. Oh, how many people through the years would love to have erased this fact from history. But there it stands still today. We see that same spirit of denial at work in our own day and time. Someone claims to have found the real tomb of Jesus in his body. And the news outlets... <laughs> They're quick to report it, and the unbelievers rally around and take heart, only to have their hopes dashed. And it happens time and time again, but the papers never print that part of the story. The religious leaders in Jesus' day would have produced the body if they could. They would have settled the matter. They would have demonstrated that those Christians were misled or deranged or deceivers, deserving prosecution. But there was no body to produce. The tomb was empty. Through the years, so many have offered their theories on just why that tomb was empty. One of those we just looked at, the claim was that Jesus had simply fainted and recovered later. But you and I now know that that simply could not have been. Jesus could not have survived the crucifixion. And the idea becomes even more absurd when you consider if he somehow was still alive and he couldn't 
recover in that tomb without help? How he had, could he in such a, a weakened state have moved that stone which weighed several tons and took levers to move it? If he were able to move it, how could he move it quietly enough so that if the guards were sleeping, he could move it without waking them? How would he even know there were guards there so as to be quiet? How could he overpower all those guards and make his escape in such a weakened condition? The idea simply is preposterous. The tomb was empty. Other theories have been put forth. You've probably heard of them. Some claim that the disciples had come and stole the body. This is what the religious authorities said when the word of the empty tomb began to spread. Matthew's account tells us that some of the soldiers, by the way, that means some stayed. There were likely many more than just four soldiers. But some went to the authorities and told them about the appearance of the angel who rolled the stone away. And they, in turn, paid the soldiers a large sum of money to to make the claim that the disciples stole the body while they slept. But why pay the soldiers anything? I mean, if they had failed in their duty, if they really had slept, how much better to have Rome punish them? It would have been evidence which would have, uh, you know, supported their claim. But the soldiers wouldn't have kept quiet, and so they were paid. They were still walking around when the penalty for their crime was death. A blind man on a flying horse could see that story was bogus. And when the disciples came uh, to them, when it comes to them as far as stealing the body, they were simply hiding behind locked doors. They, They were afraid of being arrested. They didn't have enough courage to go outside, much less risk arrest by armed in a foolish attempt to steal a dead body, which would do what for them? Precisely nothing. You know, most of them, too, all but one, as a matter of fact, died a martyr's death, which they would not have done if they knew everything they were saying was based on a lie because they'd stolen the body. You know, people will die for something they believe in, even if it's a mistaken belief that they have. But they will not die for something they know is a lie. And those disciples endured persecution. They were outcasts of their society. They were poor. They gained nothing, nothing of material value. And they achieved a wielding power for personal gain choosing rather to serve in humility. The disciples were known as honest men of integrity in spite of their failings on that Thursday night. And they're the ones who are being accused of stealing Jesus' body and deceiving people. There's nothing to be gained by such an act for them. And that theory hadn't failed. Some people try to claim, well, some other person or person stole the body. Oh, who? And for what reason? The soldiers wouldn't have done it. I mean, they were charged with guarding the tomb. And as noted, their lives were at risk because uh, because of what had happened. The religious authorities certainly wouldn't have. They were so concerned about it that they had the guard stationed at the tomb. No one else could have done it because of the guard that was there. More than that, the religious leaders would have paid dearly to anyone who 
body, and yet no one could have foreseen that. They couldn't have known what was going to happen so that it was some kind of an investment. And if someone did have the body, or they knew where it was, they would have produced it. Oh, no, what do say? The body wasn't stolen. It was merely moved from one tomb to another. Well, if that was the case, the authorities would have easily determined that and would have produced the body. And the grave clothes were still lying right where the body was in the tomb where they had laid Jesus. No one would take the body and leave the grave clothes behind. And, and, and on that note, think about it. If Jesus had revived in the tomb only to escape, would he have taken the time and the energy to take the grave clothes off of him so he could flee naked down this road? No, that tomb was empty. And it continues to be history's most astounding and persistent fact. But there was more than just an empty tomb, as powerful as that is by itself. The angel said, he is not here. And then he said, he is risen, just as he said. So what's the significance of the empty tomb? It's evidence for the resurrection. It's what's left behind when the body has been raised. The next most persistent fact of history, ranking right alongside of the empty tomb and filling that empty tomb with meaning, is the eyewitness accounts of those who saw Jesus after his death and resurrection. And there were multiple witnesses. Paul makes a list for us in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8. Jesus appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living, though some had fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And then there were many other uh, meetings recorded in other places in the New Testament. There were multiple occasions when people saw him. Those occasions, those sightings of Jesus, those times they spent with him occurred over a 40-day period. And those who saw him not only saw him, they talked with him, they touched him, and they ate with him. And he in turn encouraged them and rebuked them and restored them and taught them and, inst and, and instructed them. Most of the witnesses were still alive when Paul wrote it. Anyone could have gone and talked with them to verify what they had seen. And moreover, if those things weren't true, they would have protested against it, against having their name associated with the lie. In other words, this was not something like, a guy told me he heard from one of his friends who knows someone. The witnesses were identifiable and could be interviewed. And there were numerous meetings with Jesus after, even after his ascension. Paul met him on the road to Damascus. Uh, he stood beside Paul when he was in prison. He spoke to Ananias. He appeared in a vision to John on Patmos. John Singleton Copley, one of the great legal minds in British history and three times High Chancellor of England, uh, wrote, I know pretty well what evidence is, and I tell you, such evidence as there is for the resurrection has never broken down yet. But just as they try to explain away the empty tomb, so they try to do the same with the resurrection. They were hallucinating, is one claim. That is, frankly, impossible. One person hallucinating, that is believable. But there are too many different people at too many different times.
streets alone and in groups who saw him. And then, too, when they met him, met him as we already noted, I mean, he talked with them, he rebuked them, instructed them, ate with them, walked with them, he touched him. And such detail and clarity are not the results of hallucination. There were 500 people who saw him at the same time, and there is no known case of mass hallucinations in any history or in any other kind of record. Oh, it was a conspiracy, others say. What a conspiracy it would have to have been. I, I mean, it involved over 500 people. Not one of them ever broke as they were persecuted and broke and put to death. Then the conspiracy by the people who were known by their honesty and integrity and their total lack of guile. And the guards would have been, had to have been complicit in it, for they failed in their task. And such a conspiracy would have had to have outsmarted the Jewish and Roman authorities who somehow couldn't produce a body that should have been there, who couldn't stop the disciples from proclaiming the resurrection even on the pain of death. And yet they had all the resources of the government at their disposal. And all of the disciples were plain, poor men, unschooled in the arts of sophistry. How could they ever get away with that? Again, we go back to the truths. People will die for something they believe in, even if the thing they believe in is a lie. But they will not die for something that they know is a lie. They gain nothing for their efforts. Not power, not acclaim, not money. All they ever got for themselves in this life were the very kinds of things that most of us avoid. Sorrow and pain. No, the facts stand until this day. The tomb was empty, and Jesus rose from the dead. He died, but he's dead no longer. He is alive. He arose, the angel said. He rose just as he said. Jesus rose just as he said he would. In the early 1800s, there was a man who remains nameless until this day, but he decided that he wanted to start his own religion, and he became pretty frustrated because he wasn't able to make any converts. But he happened to know uh, the great statesman and one-time prime minister of France, Charles Maurice de Talleyrand de Perigord, and so he asked him, what, what should I do? And the statesman looked at him for a moment, and he said, I recommend that you get yourself crucified and then die, but be sure to rise again on the third day. Jesus knew he was going to die. He knew the way he would die. He knew the details leading up to it. He knew the day he would die and the time he would die. He, he could have avoided death. He knew his betrayer. He knew his betrayer would come to the garden. He could see them as they were coming up that hill to the place where he was praying and his disciples were sleeping. But he stayed and allowed himself to be arrested. He could have allowed the disciples to fight for him, but he didn't. He could have escaped even after his arrest. All he had to do was ask his heavenly Father, and 12 armies of angel would have been, angels would have been at his disposal. But he didn't ask. He didn't defend himself when brought to trial, not before the religious authorities. He, he remained silent when they accused him. They were losing their case. They had 
But then they asked him if he was the son of God. And he spoke up and he acknowledged that truth, knowing that that would condemn him to death. He didn't defend himself before the Roman authorities. Yet when he was asked, he admitted that he was uh, the king of the Jews, knowing full well that that would be enough to bring about his condemnation. But Jesus had also made the bold claim that he would rise from the dead. He knew the day three days after his death. He proclaimed it so that even the authorities knew it. He staked his claim and his reputation on the resurrection. He gave up his life, believing in his own resurrection. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Now we're almost done here this morning. There are just two more things which the angel said to the woman that we're going to look at. That angel had a lot more to say that morning, but for our purposes and for the sake of time, we're just going to look at the next two things, and we're going to try to move quickly through them. After declaring those two persistent facts of history, which can never be explained away, and which in one way really do speak for themselves, uh, truths which we uh, declare to all and take our stand on, the angels invited the women to come into the tomb so they could see for themselves. Verse 6 again, come and see the place where he lay. What was the purpose of this? Why did the angels insist that they enter the tomb and look at the very place where Jesus was laid? Well, first, it was a complete verification that his body wasn't there. Entering that tomb, it allowed their eyes to get accustomed to the dim lighting so that they could see clearly. They could see, and they knew there was no body in that tomb. They saw it for themselves and became witnesses that the tomb was empty. And not just witnesses, that an angel had told them it was empty. With their own eyes, they saw, and with their own mouths, they could declare the tomb was empty. And then there were the grave clothes, which were lying there, Jesus' body was wrapped in. Now, we'd have to turn to another gospel to get a description of them, and we're not going to go there again for the sake of time. But we're told that the strips of linen which were wrapped around his body were lying there right where his body was, and the cloth that was tied around his head was there too. And the picture that that paints for us is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he passed right through those grave clothes, leaving an empty shell. The strips of, of linen were still laying there, and the cloth over his face was in the same, same shape it was when it was tied around his head, except now it was empty. And then the tomb, going into it, added, aided them in, in their belief. It, it allowed them time to process what they were seeing for what had happened was so miraculous and so overwhelming. Now, it was almost 15 years ago now when after a routine physical, I got a call from my doctor telling me I had to go to the hospital immediately for a blood transfusion. And in a kind of disbelief, I, I went. And soon after, there began a series of tests to determine the cause of my anemia. The results were not I was told that I possibly had Crohn's disease, which was the best of the possibilities, but it was highly unlikely, yet we could hope for it. 
the doctors were almost certain uh, that I had cancer, that I had either a lymphoma of the small intestines or some other rare and weird kind of cancer of the small bowel that I had never heard of. I was told surgery was in order, and the sooner the better. I decided to have a second opinion and made an appointment at Mayo Clinic. I didn't feel awful, but I had no strength, I had no stamina, and I felt like I was going downhill constantly. And in the interim, between the initial tests and, and my appointment in Rochester at Mayo, my grandmother died. After the funeral, uh, in the graveside service, we went back to the church, and we had a meal, and afterwards, all my family, all of my extended relatives, we went and sat in the sanctuary and talked. And my uncle... Uh, godly man who really loves the Lord stood up and he said one of our number here today is sick and we're going to gather around him and anoint him with oil and pray for him and so they did they gathered around me and they did that very thing and as they prayed I will tell you right now today I will say it over and over again I felt instantly better I felt strong again but I didn't say anything to anyone at that time. I didn't want to get anyone's hopes up. Our families knew what I was going through. Our kids were young, but they knew something was up. Ann and I had been talking about what would happen if I died. Where would she live? Was my life insurance enough to buy a house and allow her to work only part-time for the sake of our kids? Where would I be buried? How do we tell the kids if things grow worse? And so I kept silent second opinion, and Mayo ran all the tests again, and that place runs like a clock. And after a period of several days, we met with the surgeon to discuss uh, my options. He was running late. There was some complication in the OR, but he finally arrived. He sat down. He pulled my file out. He looked at it again to be sure. And then he said to me, you can go home. There's nothing wrong with you. Your intestines are textbook perfect. I can't tell you why. I can't tell you what happened. There's no doubt, however, there was something wrong. We can see it in the previous test, but whatever it is, it's gone. Go home. I had to ask him to repeat himself. He said it again, repeating that he couldn't give me a reason for what had happened. Ann and I left his office, and we went to buy a shirt for me for some reason. And it was there in that store, and I finally to come home to me that I was okay, that God really had healed me. These women needed time to process, to begin to understand what was happening to them. And finally, they entered that empty tomb. Uh, well, that was the whole purpose of moving the stone. Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled away. Death couldn't hold him. How much less a mere tomb cut into rock? In his resurrection body, he could pass through walls and locked doors, as we read several accounts of that in the gospel. Material objects were no barrier to him, and yet he was not a ghost. He had a physical body, which you could see and touch. You could hear him when he spoke. You could even eat with him. Now, the stone was not moved so Jesus could get out. It was moved so that we could get in, so that we could see for ourselves that the tomb was empty. It was moved so the soldiers would know something happened. 
so the authorities could not hide their deeds. So all of Jerusalem and after that all the world would know the tomb of Jesus Christ was empty and he had risen from the dead. And the last thing we're going to look at of the things as the angel said that morning was a kind of a commission, a prelude to a greater commission which Jesus himself would give later. The angel said to the women in verse 7, Then go quickly and tell his disciples. Tell them what? <laughs> tell them he had risen from the dead. Tell them that the tomb was empty. They were to go quickly. His disciples were near despair. They had sorrowed enough. Now was the time for joy. And there was much to get ready for. They needed to prepare. They needed to pray. Go quickly and tell them the tomb is empty. He's risen from the dead. That was good news and it had to be told. And they were to tell his disciples, but it was not to stop there. When Jesus would tell them, not many days later is found at the end of this chapter when he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Those words are known by Christians far and wide as a great commission. Jesus tells us, he tells his followers to go and tell everyone the tomb is empty and he has risen from the dead. And he is calling you to come to him, to find forgiveness for sins, full and complete, to find life real and abundant and eternal. He is not here. He is risen. Go and tell the world. And so in obedience to that command, and as one of a long line of others who have done the same, I declare to you today, he is not there. The tomb is empty. He has risen from the dead, and everything has changed. And it's just as he said, for he is God who died and rose again. So today, if you know him, rejoice. And if you don't, repent. For he is coming again, just as he said. Can we try it? He is risen. Amen. And go today with that good news in your heart. Share it with